invite you to turn with me the Bible to the book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 4 this morning, the last several weeks we've been taking a high-level view of this book, trying to pick up different themes and elements of this wonderful uh, epistle. And, um, and certainly one of the themes that has been touched on in almost every, um, every message and every look at this book is the theme of love. John is uh, known as the one whom Jesus loved, and when he writes both his gospel and his epistles, they are full of that wonderful theme of love. John takes up here in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, really the, the test of love, to see whether you have eternal life by whether you have love your life. So I'll be reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now again with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone. You have given us of your spirit. And it's your spirit who has breathed out these words of scripture. We have that even now in these few moments that you use this passage to produce change in us, to form us more to think more to describe. Father, we know that this is true. You sanctify us in the truth. So do that now, Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, that even in this moment, in this time, this time, that you would show them the truth of your word by their heart. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Even theme of love is such a lovely one. It's one that we can easily talk about in many different ways, but when you come to that topic of love, you have to understand it as a very practical topic. Practical in the sense that it demands of you a way of living. It expects of you a way that you are going to conduct yourself in relationship with other people. Even as you go home from here today, if you keep in mind the words of this passage, they should have an effect on the way that you talk, the way that you think, things that you do, should have a key effect. We know that sometimes it takes longer for these things to work their way into our heart, but at least I hope you understand that even as you leave today, the very moment that you get up from that chair, there are things that you can begin to do someone who's been exhorted to love. So understanding the topic of love is so practical. I want to ask you some questions just by way to stir you up and help you think about your own life in relationship to this topic of love. So here are several questions, not so much to put you on the spot, but to help you to think through this subject. 
What did you do in this past week that showed you love anyone beside yourself? What actions did you take? Time did you give up? Words did you speak that showed you had love for someone else? What resource of yours did you give to someone else, whether a time, or talent, or treasure, that showed you loved them? What preferences of yours did you willingly give up for the good of someone else? And if you think about that, if you had any of those that you did do, did you do those things willingly or begrudgingly? And you think about this subject, subject of love, and prepare your life to what's expected of you, do you want to grow this area? Or do you resent the very idea that anyone would get in the way of what you want? Love, its presence in your life, or its absence in your life, is an indicator of the presence or absence of eternal life in you. So says 1 John. He says in verse 8, without equivocation, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Knowing God is basically the way that we describe having a real relationship with him, where we really know what he was like, and Jesus even equates knowing God to the, to the idea of eternal life. If you do not love, you do not know God. If you do not know God, you do not have eternal life. I'm not saying that love is what produces eternal life in you, but if you have eternal life, that is what produces love. We need to love. We have to love. And we need to let this portion of Scripture exhort us to love. And not only does it exhort us to love, it gives us the reason why we are to love. And it describes to us the essence of love. And that's the way that we'll look at this text, just try to unpack it kind of subject by subject here. And we want to look first at that exhortation that John gives us to love one another. There is an expectation that love will pervade the church of Jesus Christ. When we talk about love, we kind of throw the word around, and it, it may be enjoyable to us to think about the subject. It may be one of those ones that we actually like, because love sounds good and nice, but in general, as people in ourselves, without the Holy Spirit, we would be the kind of people that don't have love, and be the kind of people that generally do a much better job of receiving love than giving love, kind of the way that we're built on our own. And although we may think the call to love is one of those sentimental calls, it's really much more than that, and we would respond better to a man for just external religiosity than we would respond to a man to love, because love strikes at our very hearts. It strikes at what we have to give up for the good of someone else. It'd be easier for us to respond to fasting a certain number of times a week, or a command to recite certain prayers, or a command to sing certain hymns, or a command to sing certain praise songs, or to dress in a certain way than it is to respond to a command of love. 
This command touches the essential ethic that is to be in our life. It demands our very selves. Demands that we live in a way that is not just sometimes sporadically loving, but one that is perpetually ongoing, giving of yourself, giving of your interests for the good of others around you. Demands our very lives. This topic of love in the book of 1 John really pervades it. It's not an obscure topic. John, even at the beginning of this uh, section that I read to you, did you know how he begins it? He calls his audience beloved. He writes a command that he himself is keeping. He understands that he himself needs to be loving towards those who he writes. He calls the people to whom he writes beloved. They know his love for them as he writes to them. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, John takes up the topic of love for the first time when he declares that he's not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment, the word that you have heard, and he goes on to elaborate what that is in verse 9. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light in him there is no cause for stumbling. It goes on in chapter 3, verse 11, to give us another dose of this command to love. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love is so essential to give evidence of the presence of life in you, that if you lack it, it's actually demonstrating that you do not even know God. The exhortation is that we love one another. One another is in the New Testament, but one of the great themes that you find. We read of how we are to care for one another, uh, exhort one another, and love one another, and the list goes on. It's such a crucial and important component of Christianity, and it assumes that the love that we have is not primarily to be this love that is constrained in our hearts about how we feel towards somebody else, but rather some practical, demonstrable way of life that benefits other people around us. It assumes there is a group of people that are held together by some connection, and the atmosphere in which this group of people lives is the atmosphere of love. Church is the family of God. We're called children of God. He is our Father. Christ is the Son of God supremely, and He is graciously our brother, and we are brothers and sisters. And the kind of atmosphere that we are to have amongst us is love. There are many groups in the world, associations, corporations, that kind of assemble people together. And oftentimes they're assembled together by common interests or common goals. Corporation is assembled together by a common goal of earning money by developing some sort of product that will benefit people around them. So people are kind of held together loosely by having that same job where they work for the same kind of corporation. And there's to be a civility among them, isn't there? You don't want a, a corporation that's being, being torn at the seams. But all that's really expected is a civility that exists there. Or there are lots of associations and groups out there that are held together by common interest in a hobby, 
there are quilting groups, there are model airplane groups, there are uh, adult men like Lego groups. I mean, there's Lego, there's groups all over the place for common interests. And these are held together by this interest and there's this ability that's expected there, kind of rules of conduct. But to enter into those settings, to those groups, it is not expected that the defining relationship between the people there is one of love. But for the church, for those who belong to God himself, the mark of our relationship is not a shared interest in a hobby, not creating some product, but rather the mark of our relationship is to be love. That is what is to keep us in our relationship together, defining how we treat each other. That's why John doesn't just say, let us love. He says, let us love one another. Let's love those who are in the church. Does not exclude, of course, that we aren't, we have no obligation to love those outside of the church. Don't walk away from this thinking you're free to just love people in the church and treat everybody else like garbage. That's not the point. We're still told that we have to love our neighbor, and Jesus didn't tell us we are to love our enemy. But the focus here is on the body of Christ. And even as Paul says in Galatians 6, 9 and 10, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is to be the focus, really, of our love. When it says that we are to love one another, it indicates that there's this reciprocal nature of our love. The love that we have is to be reciprocal. That means we're not to be unbalanced. Not to say that this side of the auditorium has the spiritual gift of receiving love, and this side of the auditorium has the spiritual gift of giving love. Sometimes we think that way. We just think practically, I'm not very good at those things. I think that person, that person's really funny. They're really good. I'll let them do it. I'm much better at receiving than giving. And the church becomes lopsided. And certainly there are people who are maybe more prone towards the acts of love. But for the whole of the church, it is to be an even-keeled ship where all of us do our part to love one another. It is not to be lopsided. There should not be one group in the congregation that is loving the other group that is received. We are to outdo one another in showing honor in both senses. And just consider the beauty of a church that is grounded in that command of loving one another. Just think about what it would look like and what it does look like. And we experience in many of these blessings because I think generally you do a great job of indeed loving one another. But just think practically of coming together at a business meeting where there are not personal agendas on the table, rather the atmosphere in the room is seeking what you can do to serve the other people who are there. When we come to decisions, the aim is not to please ourselves, but to please one another. Or when something as practical or as simple as paint colors are chosen, the main goal is not to get your favorite color, get your favorite design, but rather than saying, how can I serve other people in this moment? Or when there is a need, you have a heart that you want to contribute to. And when you are in need, you are the recipient of those who want to take care of you. When others are rejoicing, you rejoice with them. When you are rejoicing, they rejoice with you. 
When others are weeping, you weep with them, and when you weep, they weep with you. That's the reciprocal nature of loving one another. This very feature should be so prominent in our congregation that when people come in, they think, in a sense, we might be a little bit off our rockers because we actually care about you. We actually give to each other for each other's good. And Jesus said it this way in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Presence of that love must be in the church of Jesus Christ to show that we are his disciples. By that, all people will know who he belongs to. Church must have love. That's why John says, Beloved, let us love one another. But he goes on and he gives us a reason for this love. Why this love has to exist in the church. If it is for some reason not obvious to you that the church should be defined in its relationships by love, then you may need a little bit of a primer of what church is. The church is a group of people who have been rescued from the wrath of God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. There, Jesus was lifted up, die in the place of sinners as a substitute. And there, God, his Father, accepted his sacrifice on the behalf of his people. And the motive behind that gift of all gifts was love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The church then, conceived in love, born in love, rescued in love, is the very air we breathe. So then it should be no surprise that love should be so pervasive in the church, God himself giving his own son the rescue The origin of love is God himself. This is what John says again in verse 7. Love and let us love one another, for love is from God. I think it's good for us to ask questions about origins. Where do things come from? Why are things the way that they are? I think humanity in general has that kind of curiosity. We ask those kind of questions. Why is the world the way it is? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why are things this way? One of the questions that ought to be asked is simply, where does love come from? Why is love something that exists? Love is kind of this weird concept because in some ways it's this abstract thing. It's a, an emotion and yet an action and simultaneously. Where does love come from this universe? If you step away from Scripture and hold a different worldview in which God is not the author of life, sustainer of all things, then you come up with a different explanation for there's a letter or an article written by the senior lecturer in evolutionary biology and paleontology at Bath. And he conjectures about the origin of love. Where does it come from? And he says this, quote, 
The capacity for love evolved. That natural selection favored caring for one another. Fossils tell us that love evolved hundreds of millions of years ago, helping our mammalian ancestors survive in the time of the dinosaur. That just warms your heart, doesn't it? He goes on to explain and argue that reptilian behavior like that Komodo dragon's display simply to lay eggs, abandon them, and then if they happen to encounter their offspring following, they will eat them. And so he conjectures that bonding formed in the presence of love formed when lactation arose, developed in mothers who nursed their young, creating this ongoing bond between mother and child. And then he says, adult bonding really formed uh, in order to have joint raising of children for their protection and the ongoing of their progeny. And he concludes, quote, caring helps us cooperate and cooperation helps us compete Humans can be selfish and destructive, but we've dominated the planet only because of an unparalleled ability to care for one another. For partners, children, families, friends, fellow humans, allowed cooperation on a scale never before seen in the history of life. One of the problems with that view of love, which is namely a view that love exists in order for security and protection in the ongoing of progeny. One of the problems is that there is nothing transcendent then about love. It is something that just arose millions of years ago for the ongoing protection of those who possess this attribute. There's nothing eternal about it. It came as part of the process of natural selection. And then here's the thing something better than love may come around at some point in the future that replaces it as a source of protection for progeny. And so love may no longer exist. Furthermore, from that kind of idea of love, there's no real moral component to love in this worldview. It's simply biology. Complex biology, yes, but simply biology at the end of the day. It's like this, I love you, honey, because time and chance randomly placed us here, and you helped us survive better and pass along my genes to the next generation. Tell that to your one, see how it goes. But I think the authors of articles like that write with an understanding that love indeed is transcendent. And they use language that talks about how unknowable it is, and how abstract it is, and even though they try to concretely place it in, in evolutionary history, they still know there's something transcendent about love. They know there's something about people coming together and caring for each other, loving one another, giving up their time and their treasure for the good of others, that it's a, a transcendent virtue that truly exceeds just mere biology. And the reason why love is transcendent is because it has transcendent origins. It is originated in God himself. That's where it comes from. Not something that just sparked into this world millions of years ago. Rather, love is from God. So says John. 
that statement precedes the theory of evolution and simply posits that love exists because God exists. Love comes from God. It finds its origin in Him. You want to know why love exists, why love is in the world, and why it matters, not because natural selection has unthinkingly woven it into our world currently, but rather because God in His very being is love, and so has woven love into the world as well. John says famously there, verse 8, God is love. That means love is an essential attribute of who God is. It is something He always is, like He is always spirit, always light, always holy. He is always love. Before the world was made, before there was an electron, or an atom, or a molecule, or seeds, or land, or animals, or humans. There was God, and because God was there, even before time itself, there was also love. This, by the way, necessitates that our God is a personal, triune God. Because love is always others-looking. How can a God, who is a Unitarian, do that? Whereas God, who is Trinitarian, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, now has the capacity to love. God has always, He always will be, love. And therefore, He always needed someone to love. And so the Father has always loved the Son. And the Son has always loved the Father. And the Father and Son have always loved the Spirit. Love exists because our God is a triune God. He is a God of eternal relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus, John chapter 17, as He prays to him, His Father, He says, You loved me before the foundation of the world. That relationship of love existed between Father and Son before time began. And Jesus mentions in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence for the glory that I had with you before the world existed. For all eternity, Father gave to the Son glory in love. The Son, when he took on flesh and entered the world as a man, continued in that relationship that he had always had with his Father and he as his Son. But he demonstrated his love for the Father in this way in John 14, 31. He says, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is not just an abstract doctrine that has no relevance to your life. This is so good and so important. Because the fact that God has always been and always will be love is meant to communicate to us that God doesn't just occasionally love when he feels like it. It's who he is and what always does. When we think about love from a human perspective, Certainly all of us, I hope, have tasted of love from someone else. Perhaps we need to give love to other people. But it's fickle. It's up and down. It's inconsistent. And it's often when it, when it feels good to us. 
when it's convenient. And it's often when we come across somebody who's really easy to love. But when you find somebody who's hard to love, that's just code for, I don't love them. It's the way we experience it in this human We're up and down, here and there, our love, passion. But because love is derived in God Himself, who always is and will be, then His love is consistent and it's not dependent on people outside of Him. In other words, it's not dependent on us, just as our love is often dependent on how we feel towards somebody else or what they've done to us or how it's going to benefit us if they love, we love them. God is independent of all of that and He is love. And so it will always be this. God, in his nature, possesses love. It's who he is, to who he absolutely is, and always has been. And it's not as though God suddenly changed when we became saved. It had been before, and he will be while we are, and he will be afterwards, always love. And the heart of God was not suddenly softened towards sinners once we became one. He has always been love. He does not change. He is immutable. He will always be what he will be. He's always been love and always will be love. So his love is consistent. So for all eternity, you are his child. For every year, every moment, every second, you will know the God who is love, expressing his love towards you in a well that will never run dry. Because that is who God is. If you have been born of God, which is a way to say that he's given you a new nature, new heart, he's given you eternal life. God is love, and you have been born of God, then what should you be like? You should be loving, like God is. Be born of God means that something has happened to you by God, where He has transformed you. Because you have His seed abiding in you, then you must be like Him. God said, Beloved, let us love one another. The love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is The reason any of us love because of who God is and what He has done. That's the Now we've talked about love a lot. Interpretation to it, reason for it. We really need the definition of it. Because our world likes to throw that word a lot around a lot and have lots of definitions for what it means. But we have to have a biblical understanding of what love is. And it's one of those words that needs to be carefully defined so we don't get deceived to thinking it is something it isn't. In the evolutionary sense of love, it's simply a romantic bond. It's a pair bonding 
as it's described in that article, where male and female enter into a monogamous relationship in order to better preserve their life and their progeny. And certainly there is romantic love, and it's an important kind of love, but if it is not undergirded by the kind of love being spoken of here, it's really not love, it's just lust. The kind of love John is referring to here extends beyond just a male-female relationship. It extends into a kind of love that can define all kinds of relationships. It's an agape love. That's the Greek word behind the word used here in chapter 4, verse 9. And it simply could be dictionary defined this way. A relatively high level of interest in the well-being of another. Affection, esteem, love. Thankfully, we don't have to just rely on a definition like that, because that doesn't really stir us up too much, does it? But John paints for us a portrait of what love really is. He shows it to us. In verse 9, he tells us, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That means love is on display. Love is shown. You can actually see it now. You don't have to scratch your head about what it is. You actually get to look at it like a, a picture. Something that had been in some sense veiled before, though God is always love, always has been. He's always loving, but now it's on display in a picturesque kind of way. Notice how his love is displayed this way. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through See the components of love there? His love was active, he sent. His love was giving, he sent his son. His love was sacrificial, he sent his only son. The most valuable object of his love, he gave. And then his love was purposeful for our good, that we might live through him. The love of God that was made manifest was this, it was active, it was giving. It was sacrificial, and it was purposeful for the good of those who benefit from it. That's agape love. Then he goes on further to tell us, define for us what love is even more. He says, in this is love, in verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I personally think, and this is certainly biased, but that verse, that sentence, 1 John 4, 10, is one of the greatest sentences that has ever been written. It's such a profound thought because it puts together two ideas that would seemingly be at odds for us. And the ideas that go together here is God's love, and God's wrath. And they're held together by that word propitiation. God is a God of love, and He loves holiness. And because He loves holiness, He has to hate unrighteousness and purity. He could not be a God of love and a God of holiness if he did not also hate that which is impure and unholy. And so being loving and hating unholiness are really not contradictory. 
But when he looks at the unholiness that pervades the people of this planet, he still looks with love, a self-giving, sacrificial love that has the purpose of benefiting those who he sets his love upon. And the way he does that is by sending his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, who went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins, so that on the cross, as he hung there, he was a sacrifice who was enduring the just wrath of God against our sins, propitiating God, satisfying his justice, so that we, through God's love, could be declared righteous and innocent in his presence. And that act at the cross is God's love to satisfy his wrath so we can be received into his presence. That's his love. It is the biggest possible gift God himself would ever give you. Because he really gave himself. He gave his only son. He gave him for our good. So we will never know only know the grace love for us. John Stott puts it this way. The coming of Christ is therefore a concrete historical revelation of God's love. For love is self-sacrifice, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost, and a greater self-giving of God's gift of the Son there had never been could be. So, if you've received that love, what kind of love then do you need? Fickle kind of love that just loves people when it's convenient for you, when they're lovable? But love that flows out of knowing that while you are still a sinner, Christ is dying. Kind of love that gives all that you have the good of someone. So, once again, John Scott says, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed in him can go back to a life of selfishness. God so loved us, John says in verse 11, we also ought to love one another. God's love is active, God's love is giving, God's love is sacrificial. God's love is purposeful and good. That's the kind of love which we ought to be. Some people are really good talkers. Talk to me. Say lots of things that sound really good. And to be accepted. John cuts through that for us. When he says in chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the ones. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in little children? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When you love, 
for the problem. It's really going to cost you, yourself, something. And after hearing about the love of Christ for us and the expectation that church of Christ should be a church that loves one another, we need to come back and think once again about our own life. What do you need to do? How do you need to love? You could ask it this way. What do you need to give? This is not Floyd, by the way, to try to fill the offering box. The goal actually is that the very people in this church experience the love that you have. What do you need to give? Could be your time. We can become so convinced that we need to do this and that, the other thing, and we fill our calendar up with all types of things that are really ultimately what we want to do for our own sake. What do you need to give up with your time so that you have time to give to others, your brothers and sisters and friends? It could be your gifting. Each person who's brought to Christ is given a, really a gifting. It's kind of a composite who you are, what God has given you. It's a spiritual gifting that enables you to serve this church. It's what has come to us from the faith of Christ. What do you need to do to step out in faith in order to serve the body of Christ in love? What are you withholding? From the gifting God has given you that needs to be given for the good of others. I think few things are more disheartening than to see people whom God has rescued, whom God has gifted, to be sitting on the sidelines wasting what God has given It's not there for your personal benefit, it's for others to benefit from. It could be your resources that. How has God provided for you so that you can help to find John said something remarkable just here at the end of our text. It says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And why is he bringing that up? What does that have to do with what's been described? That instinct consisted teaching in scripture that God in his essence who he is cannot be seen by man and live. That is, in all of his purity, all of his holiness and glory, if you were to perceive him, you would simply perish. And so when God reveals himself, he, his manifestations of himself, that can be visually perceived, but it is not all of who he is all at once. And so God has not been seen. No one has ever seen God. And yet we have this also elusive phrase in the sense that God is love. So how do you see this God who is love that cannot be seen? Well, what John is saying here is this unseeable God who is love can be known. How do you know? He is displayed on us. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected or completed in us. Here's the point. The unseen God, his love is completed when we love one another. So that when people look at his church, 
the Red Sea. To see people belong to God, to God in the flock. To see really God on display. How incongruous it would be for the world to look at a church and think, perceive, it is a group of power hungry, backstabbed, backbiting, selfish, unrighteous people. Yeah, we're an emergency ward of sinners. Stumble in many ways, fail and sin. The atmosphere of this hospital and this church has to be one. That's what we They don't like adding our church on the map at all. But they encourage you by saying, broadly and generally, I think that you as a church excel above the world. That you're there for each other. When somebody is hurting, you hurt with them. Someone's rejoicing, you rejoice with them. When someone's in need, you provide for them. When someone needs encouragement, you encourage them. They need exhortation to work. I think that they But love does not rest on their glory. Paul says, sell the spirit. Because love doesn't come to an end. Always looking for more opportunity to love. Brothers and sisters, sell the spirit.